Welcome to the Dinner Party Download. This is your icebreaker. All right. What do you get when you cross an elephant with a rhino? I don't know what. Elephrino. I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. And from APM American Public Media, this is the Dinner Party Download, an audio atlas of everything excellent in arts and culture this week. You just got a joke from author Dave Barry. That'll help break the ice. His new book is called Best State Ever. And believe it or not, it's about Florida. Just kidding, Florida. Later, he'll answer your etiquette questions. Plus, Guillermo del Toro, the visionary filmmaker behind the movie Pan's Labyrinth and the FX show The Strain, stops by to talk about bugs, yo-yos, and creativity. Only two of which creep me out. Also coming up, comedian Nicole Byer gets racially profiled by the child she babysits. Author Mark Grief lays out his case against exercise. And rising R&B star Jamila Woods shares her dinner party playlist. But first, as at any party, we start with small talk. All week long, you've been hearing these headlines. Thanks to a Brazilian government bailout, the Paralympics will go on. China pulled out all the stops to host President Obama and other leaders. Jury selection has begun for the trial of anti-government militia leader Amon Bundy. Now for something you might not have heard, we are joined by Rehan Harmansi. She is editor-in-chief of Atlas Obscura a really interesting kind of travel website. They have a book coming out this month called An Explorer's Guide to the World's Hidden Wonders. Mm. Rehan, what story are you going to be talking about this weekend? I'm going to be talking about clean food. Clean food, like kale and green juices? <laughs> well, <laughs> My ish, favorite kind. Ish. Much preferable to dirty food, certainly. <laughs> hey, dirty fries are pretty good. <laughs> I guess, depending. Yeah. I'm, I'm assuming this is not what we're talking about, though. No, 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 no. We're not referring to actual dirt. Um, <laughs> this is a term that certain food industry groups are trying to get into our lexicon to describe cultured or lab-grown food. Mm, like lab-grown meats? Yes. yes. Basically, there's a thought that it doesn't sound very appetizing to be eating an in vitro burger. But <laughs> if you're like, I'm going to go out for some clean food tonight, All right. it's a lot better. Why did they choose the word clean for lab-grown foods? I think they're talking more about the ethos behind the foods rather than the actual food itself. Yeah. Um, it's mm-hmm. It's about promoting food that is coming from sustainable, ethical methods. methods. I'm I'm of two minds about this because on one hand, it is a little freaky (laughs) to have food made in a lab. But on the other hand, it is, I I assume it would be more sustainable. And also you don't have to kill any creatures to have lab-grown food. So maybe we do want to make it seem more palatable, right? Yeah. I mean, I think reasonable people can say, why shouldn't we make it more palatable? I will say the term clean food is already around in more of a Gwyneth Paltrow goop sort of way. (laughs) That's true. Yes. Um, but it seems like the industry is getting behind this. That's interesting because GMO, some would say that that's the same thing. Like these foods are made to kind of boost our crops to feed more people. But when but you're G- genetically modified, it yeah. just really sends people running for the hills. It sounds like a monster movie. I mean, I worked at Modern Farmer, you guys. I Yes, it does. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so if they just had a name, it was just an image issue with the GMOs. We'd called it Chuck. <laughs> Everybody would love it. That's right. Uh, Rehan Hermansi, thank you so much for the small talk. Thank you, guys. And now time for a clean, crisp cocktail. This is the part of the show where we tell you something that happened in history, then give you a fitting drink to serve along with it. It's like history's a coastal forest shrouded in a fog of booze. Oh, poetic. Great for hiking. First, the history part. This month, two and a half centuries ago, everyone in America became 11 days older overnight. Michelle Philippi is on vacation, so here's our friend Tracy Samuelson to tell the tale. 30 days, half September, but not in 1752. 
To understand why, you first have to go back to the late 1500s, when Pope Gregory XIII bestowed upon the world the Gregorian calendar, the calendar most of us use today. It was soon adopted by much of Western Europe. But not by Great Britain. They were staunchly Protestant, and therefore didn't appreciate a Catholic pope telling them how to mark the passing of days. So Britain, and its colonies, including America, clung stubbornly to the old Julian calendar they'd been using for centuries. Now, the two calendars are pretty different, and eventually Britain's Julian calendar was 11 days behind the Gregorian calendar its neighbors used, which caused a lot of confusion when it came to record-keeping. Think about it this way. A letter from Gregorian France, postmarked, say, October 10th, could conceivably arrive in Julian, England, on a date several days earlier. Finally, after holding out for 170 years, Britain and its colonies decided to give in and go Gregorian, which, among other things, meant that in 1752, they simply chopped 11 days out of the month of September. When colonial Americans went to bed on the 2nd, they woke up on the 14th. In the short term, this also caused confusion. Would interest still accrue over those missing 11 days? What if a bill was due on a date that now didn't exist? But eventually the kinks got ironed out and all was well, except for scholars of this whole period of history who still have to figure out which calendar to use when deciding on the date anything happened. So that was the history, and now for a drink to serve along with it. I'm on the line with David Ricker, bartender at the Fat Canary, a restaurant and bar in Williamsburg, Virginia. Williamsburg, of course, was subject to the calendar shift back when Williamsburg was the capital of England's Virginia colony. And, of course, colonial Williamsburg remains delightfully lost in time. David, what drink did that story inspire you to make? Oh, it inspired us to create this drink. It's called the Orange and Stormy. Why that? Well, you know, there's the dark and stormy, which is dark rum, uh, ginger beer, and lime juice. Course, so we yeah. sort of took a twist on it, which is Mount Gay rum, very popular in the in the old world. And then we took uh, blood orange and a little bit of ginger liqueur. That sounds totally delicious, but is there a reason why you went with orange? Is there something with that color? The color and also the fact that, you know, rum and orange seem to go really well together. And in the trade, you know, back then they were constantly trading with different countries and, and oranges were very popular. The Spanish brought orange to the New World, oh. and uh, it was a delicacy, and uh, we thought it'd be kind of kind of tangy, zippy, and it works well in the in the heat of Virginia in the summertime. Oh yeah, that doesn't hurt, or in the <laughs> early fall, whatever we're calling this month. Right. Any special way that you mix this stuff up? Oh, uh, we just do a good pour of Mount Gay rum and the Canton ginger liqueur. So you've got two potent alcohol <laughs> components. I feel like that's appropriate. I feel like the it colonists is. probably didn't skimp on the alcohol. No, no, their life was hard, so they actually uh, consume quite a bit of alcohol. So it's a beautiful color drink, you know, the darker orange color, and then put it in a big tall glass with lots of ice, and you can sip it or gulp it, and if you gulp too many, then you might miss several days. I was just going to say, you could <laughs> yeah. just, suddenly your year is a lot shorter. That's right, that's you right. You don't even remember how. 
David Ricker of the Fat Canary in Williamsburg, Virginia. You'll find that in all our cocktail recipes at dinnerpartydownload.org. And folks, speaking of calendars, pencil us in for the weekend of October 28th through the 30th, because we'll be appearing live at the Now Hear This podcast festival in Anaheim, California. That's right. We'll be featured alongside pod stars like Mark Maron and many more. The info's on our website. Again, dinnerpartydownload.org. So we've had a drink, made small talk, and now this party needs some music. And here with that is poet and vocalist Jamila Woods. Her song collaborations with Chance the Rapper shot her into prominence, and her soulful debut album, Heaven, led critics to call her an R&B genius. Here's Jamila with a playlist for Insomniacs. Hi, this is Jamila Woods, and for my dinner party, I'm going to do something a little different. It's going to start a little bit later. We'll be outside under the stars, and we're kind of just there all night and going to get started. This is my dinner party soundtrack. The first track is Why I Love the Moon by Phony People. That's why I love the moon. Every night it's there for you. Whenever I make a playlist, it is to kind of flex my musical knowledge, hoping that someone will ask, oh, who is this? I haven't heard this before. And I get to tell them. (laughs) It's a love song, and it's also very cosmic, which I like. It's kind of like Afrofuturistic vibe. Part of Afrofuturism is just the idea that because black history, you know, there's been so many struggles, it's kind of a radical act to imagine ourselves in the future. The next song is Take Away by Missy Elliott featuring Genuine. I love this song because Missy Elliott is really singing on it. She's known for danceable and like sing-alongable rap songs, but this song, she's using her voice in a different way. It definitely has like a sensuality to it, but it's just so sweet to me because it's just saying for once in our lifetime, let's just have it just be us and not all this superficial stuff, you know? I love everything about you. Take away, yeah. You go to platinum chains. Your love to me is platinum babe. This would probably be the time when someone grabs someone and like wants to slow dance on the grass or something. It's just really, I love this song so much. This song is called Les Fleurs by Minnie Ripperton. I could really never make a playlist without someone from Chicago. (laughs) 
I love the part in the song where she's not saying real words. It's cool to have those moments in your art where maybe you're speaking to a particular community or maybe you're just speaking to yourself. Not everything has to be legible to everyone. It's not exclusionary, it's just providing layers and making the art richer. So the party is winding down. The sun's almost coming up. You can kind of hear birds starting to chirp, and it's kind of time to kick everybody out of your house, but you also want to send them away with something beautiful. And in an act of shameless self-promotion, I will play one more song, Emerald Street, from my new album. Emerald Street is the street that I was born on, and I kind of romanticize it. I wrote this song about a dream date that I might have there. I be in my nightgown, chicken wings ready. If you bring the sauce, we can go steady. You can have the coleslaw, we can share the one straw, sit outside on my block. Party soundtrack from Jamila Woods. Her debut solo album, Heaven, is out now. All right, coming up, humorist Dave Barry shares his theory on why Florida is, well, Florida. And we learn why Guillermo del Toro, the mind behind horror fantasy films like Pan's Labyrinth and the TV show The Strain, is the last guy you should talk to if you're afraid of insects. They have multiple hearts. They don't need oxygen. They don't have lungs. Their blood is white. Gulp. Ditto. And the Dinner Party Download continues. Welcome back to the Dinner Party Download, the culture show that helps you win your dinner party. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano. Later, comic Nicole Byer recounts her relationship with a younger guy. Plus, author Mark Grief tells us why he is against everything. But first, let's meet our guest of honor. All right. And this week, it's Mexican-born filmmaker Guillermo del Toro. He makes horror fantasy films, but they've brought him praise way beyond the world of genre fandom. His gothic fable Pan's Labyrinth earned a bunch of Oscar nominations and shows up regularly on lists of the best films of the century. I'm also a big fan of his robots versus monster blockbuster Pacific Rim. You would be. Uh, Of course. And the FX show he co-created called The Strain launched a new season last week. But I spoke to him at the L.A. County Museum of Art, where there is now an exhibit of his own items called from what he calls Bleak House. That is his personal working office, which he keeps stuffed with everything from life-size statues of Frankenstein's monster to taxidermy to movie collectibles. In a press conference before the show opened, he said he considers Bleak House his, quote, greatest achievement. When we met, I asked why. It's like an exploded view of my brain. I organize it as a thinking place where I do the shelving. I classify the books alphabetically. The little altars in the house... Every object, every little trinket is there because I put it there. And there's a reason behind it. There's a corner dedicated to Lovecraft. There's another corner dedicated to crustaceans. And another corner dedicated to insects or uh, watches or, what you know. So there is, a, uh, when you see Bleak House, it's me in essence. 
Lovecraft, crustaceans, yes. insects, all of those are represented in this exhibition. And I want to go through each one and tell me what the significance is to you. Starting with insects, because insects are the most freaky things in the world to me. I can't stand cockroaches in the first film of yours that I saw was Mimic, which is all about giant cockroaches. So start with what's the fascination? Well, I think that the most alien creatures in the world live with us. When you think about insects, they have uh, multiple hearts. They don't need oxygen. They don't have lungs. Their blood is white. They have six, seven, eight eyes, whatever they need. Nothing of, that you're saying is making me more pleased with insects. No. And, and the fact then is, as a kid in Mexico, in my grandmother's house, I shared that house with uh, hordes of insects, particularly some, uh, a horde of cockroaches that lived in the water tank. My grandma used to pay us very paltry sums to go in and clean that water tank. You could not pay me enough. Well, I tell you, the, the scariest part was lifting the lid because the entire lid was covered with roaches. Ah. And then the thing about insects that is freaky, and particularly of roaches, they are not afraid of you. You know, these things are a hundred times your size, smaller, and they attack you. They go for you, and that is incredibly scary. It's a little bit like Joe Pesci with a knife. <laughs> They're the Joe Pesci of the animal world. <laughs> yes, they, what, are I funny? You know, they, they, they come at you. Well, but then why celebrate them and have them in your house and altars? I celebrate what I like and I, what, I, what I fear, you know? And in my movies, I think the, the only monsters that are remote because of their perfection, are insects, you know? They are, if God made the mistake with an avocado by putting too big a pit, you know, God got everything right, apparently, with insects, because they are perfect, reproductive, eating, constructing machines, but they lack a soul. They have a sort of a hive mentality. They die for the hive, but they don't have a moral choice. They represent uncomplicated, horrible, unstoppable nature for me and, and, and they are perfection but they are not a perfection that is pleasing I am a lover of imperfection and I celebrate it why? only because it's a much it's a standard we can all live by you know I think imperfection is a highly attainable goal <laughs> whereas perfection isn't it isn't and I think that we live in a world that goes it's a pendulum swing uh, socially of completely staged perfection. We present ourselves politically uh, impeccable, perfect, uh, shiny teeth, we don't sweat, we wear the right clothes, and then you swing the pendulum and we are shooting each other, we're chewing on each other, we're grinding each other, and the pendulum, if it's not that extreme in one end, is not that extreme on the other. And in the middle, it's imperfection. And I think when we allow ourselves to be imperfect, fallible, grotesque even, we deal with it. This leads nicely to the second thing I would talk about that you're fascinated by and is represented very well in this exhibition is monsters. Talk to us about your your fascination with them. Monsters are patron saints of imperfection and they represent otherness. You know, you and I may have a trait or a proclivity that can marginalize us. You know, we can be neatly grouped for people to hate us. You know, it can be gender, race, you name it. But monsters are all in one. 
Monsters simply don't belong, you know? They're like the, the biggest outsiders. They're the biggest outsiders, and, and that's what I celebrate and love about them. There's a liberating aspect to, to uh, monsters that I find spiritually very close to the way I view the world. Your biggest monster fan, obviously you love uh, Frankenstein. Yeah. Why him specifically? The creature of Frankenstein as played by Karloff and as written by Shelley is a Miltonian figure, you know, an outcast of paradise that was thrown into a world of pain and sensorial overload and disoriented existence by an uncaring father. Basically, the predicament of all the human race boiled down into one. And when you're 19, and when you read a book written by a teenager... Shelley. Shelley, that encompasses exactly how you feel as an outsider in a world that is impossible for you to understand and no one is guiding you, this creature is incredibly moving. And Karloff captures, always in his performances, a vulnerable side. He, I think he was a terrific actor. His Frankenstein creature is the pinnacle. Uh, speaking of your heroes, you mentioned also in this uh, speech you gave before we were all allowed to look at this stuff, that you met Ray Harryhausen, the special effects genius, stop motion genius, who was huge in the 50s and through the 80s. Tell me about meeting him. I met him in uh, Lake Placid, in the film festival in Lake Placid. I interviewed him on stage. They said, we know you're a big fan. Can you interview him? I said, absolutely. I, I went to Lake Placid uh, with Elmer Leonard. Yeah, the writer. And Quentin Tarantino. <laughs> You know, and we had a great dinner. That is the geek fest par excellence. That's, that was, I tell you. And then Ray uh, came on stage, we met. I, I was, uh, I wouldn't say erudite, but I was a lover of his movies. And he liked the, the questions I had. And he said, you must visit me in London. And I visited him in London. And we had dinner and he showed me the place where he kept all the monsters from his movies. The little kind of models? Yes, and I held in my hands the models of the two creatures of his that I love the most, Talos, the animated statue, and the skeletons from Jason and the Argonauts. And did you steal them? No, I, I thought about it. I thought about it. I said, well, the door is not that far away. He's not that fast. <laughs> <laughs> he knows where you live, though. But he knows where you'd put it, in Bleak House. Oh, yes, he would find me. Now, in reality, is, look, I adore the man. I, I think that uh, there is a generosity of spirit to the monster lovers. You know, Rick Baker, Dick Smith, Ray Harryhausen. And the love of, of monsters is, is very profound. And that unites gener through the generations. Uh, you know, Ray Bradbury, Ray Harryhausen, to John Landis, Joe Dante, John Carpenter, and you keep going. And then yesterday, signing books for uh, kids that love monsters, I see myself in there. And, and you, you know there is a healthy, unhealthy adoration for these creatures. Healthy and unhealthy. That sounds about right. Um, we have two questions that we ask everyone on this show. The first one is, if we were to meet you at a dinner party, what question should we not ask you? Are you tired of being asked? No, you know, there's nothing, there's nothing like that, I think. I, I'm, I'm actually very, because I'm so misanthropic in my daily life, when I'm gregarious, I enjoy it. Why are you so misanthropic in your daily? You seem like a sweet guy. I really love to be thinking or watching or reading or listening to music or being with my family. I, I think uh, in order to have an amplitude of work, you need a very narrow focus socially, mm -hmm. you know? It's almost like your social life 
are your creatures and the places you go in your stories, you know? To that extent, since you've done so much reading, our second question is, tell us something we don't know about yourself, or it could be about the world at large, a piece of trivia. Well, I, I am in, I'm completely incapable with a yo-yo. I, I, I am 51, and I never mastered a yo-yo. Is that important to you for some reason? It is actually a dent in my pride. I remember being a kid and, and being frequently and completely humiliated by the fact that I cannot even make it come back. Not once. I hope it works out for you, man. <laughs> it won't. Guillermo del Toro, his FX TV show The Strain just launched its third season, and the exhibit of his personal collection of bugs, monsters, and other wonderfully freaky things <laughs> is called At Home with Monsters. It's on display through Thanksgiving at the L.A. County Museum of Art. Although something tells me it's going to be pretty busy around Halloween. That's true. To eavesdrop. Comic and actor Nicole Byer starred in MTV's hit show Girl Code. This week she stars in a new show based loosely exactly on her life. It's called Loosely Exactly Nicole. Today we overhear her recall a few adventures she undertook with one of her best pals who happened to be a baby. So I was at a point in my life where I was a waitress and a hostess. Then the place I was waitressing closed and then I had already started taking improv classes and I met this guy in my class who had mentioned that his wife was pregnant. And I said to him, I was like, hey, I'm real unemployed. So when your wife has that kid, I'll babysit him or her, whatever. He had big blue eyes and a big old head. And as he was like getting older, his head grew faster than the rest of his body. And I would just like tell him all my problems and he had to listen to me because he couldn't crawl anywhere because his head was so big. It is funny that that baby was my friend. I remember when he figured out farts were funny. We were like sitting on the stoop and he was drinking a bottle and he farted and then there was a pause and then he laughed so hard for so long and then I started laughing and then it was, <laughs> I guess, so weird for people walking past literally a baby sitting there with a bottle and a grown woman just laughing like we were like having a beer together. I was like, I think we have the same sense of humor. His mother used to get O Magazine, and I don't think it's racist because he was a baby, but, like, he would always go, Nicole! <laughs> he thought I was Oprah, which makes me so happy. But I've never thought to be like, hey, buddy, we don't all look alike. We would stop at Whole Foods, and there was one time he was in the stroller. I was like, hey, buddy, what do you want to eat? Do you want watermelon or chicken? Because I like watermelon. It was in season. It's delicious. And then Whole Foods has surprisingly good fried chicken. And uh, I was like, so what do you want, chicken or watermelon? And then he just goes, chicken, watermelon, chicken, watermelon. And then I realized, I was like, I'm a big black lady pushing around a white child screaming stereotypes about black people. And I looked around, and everyone in Whole Foods was just staring at me. I was just like, we have to, you can't, please stop it. I didn't want to be like, 
what you're screaming is stereotypes about your babysitter. And I set you up by saying, which one do you want? And it seems as if you want. It was just like too long of a conversation because I think he just wanted both of them. And then he like eventually like quieted it down. And then I got both the chicken and the watermelon. And then I also got grape soda. So I was like really rounding out the stereotype. I guess I was like, if it happened, you better live in it. know if our adventures affected his future i just know like when i stopped nannying him it was the best when i'd go back and see him he'd get really excited like nicole i have so much to tell you i have so much to tell you i think we like affected each other like i think he made me more responsible and then i think i made him an outgoing little boy and it was so interesting to like watch a kid grow and like learn things so like kids are really cool and interesting and i don't want them Nicole Byer, her new show, Loosely Exactly Nicole, premiered this week on MTV. Just like that story, it's drawn from her own life. New episodes air Monday nights. All right, coming up, author Mark Grief explains what you should be doing instead of exercising. And humorist Dave Barry explains why all of America is to blame for Florida. When the Dinner Party Download continues. Welcome back to the Dinner Party Download, the arts and leisure section of public radio. I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. In a few minutes, we'll hear a brand new tune from singer-songwriter Joan Shelley. And author Mark Grief, founder of the journal N Plus One, talks about his new book, Against Everything. But first, to help us decide what we're for and what we're against, it's time for our weekly etiquette lesson. That's right. Each week, you send us your questions about how to behave. And returning to answer them this time is one of our favorite etiquette guests, Writer mm-hmm. Dave Barry, you may have chuckled your way through one of his thousand or so humor columns for the Miami Herald, which were also syndicated. He won a Pulitzer for those. Dave's also the author of around 12,000 best-selling books, and <laughs> his newest is a love letter to one of his favorite topics, his home state of Florida. The book is called Best State Ever. That's in all caps, and it's mostly tongue-in-cheek, of course. He joins us naturally from Miami, and Dave, welcome back to our show. Thank you very much. I'm trying to talk with my tongue in my cheek. Oh, there you are. Oh, well done. Yeah, I had to explain it immediately, though. So. Well, it is radio. So <laughs> so you called this book Best Date Ever, but you actually are from New York, not Florida. Yes. Mm. So Correct. can you recount the memory of your first impression of your now native land? Wasn't good. Um, when I, I was hired by the Miami Herald, and at the time I was living in this community in Pennsylvania, very bucolic, safe little community, and the Miami Herald flew me down for interviews, and, and this was early 80s, the height of the cocaine cowboy era. Oh, and, my. I literally saw cars on the street with bullet holes in the side, oh, and no. then there were drugs falling from the sky, washing up on the beaches. That actually was a good part. But <laughs> so you were like, I'm in. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So anyway, I spent like 83 to 86. I would come down every few months doing stories. I ended up going all over the city and all over South Florida, and I, I sort of went from thinking, God, this is the scariest place, to really kind of finding it was fascinating. Mm. So now I think it's re- I love Miami because it's never, ever boring. Was there a moment where you're like, this is the place for Barry? It was probably like some January day when- I was going to say. Sleet all over my house and my car in Pennsylvania. Yeah. And I thought, man, why am I doing this? So it so, wasn't the richness of stories Rico, that you could get. you're searching for some poetic moment about Florida, <laughs> yeah, when the no, truth is- just- he yeah. moved the reason everyone else does. Also, the taxes are really low. That's right. At one yeah. point in the book, you say, yeah, you, you know, you pay high taxes for corrupt government in, in the Northeast, and you can pay nothing for corrupt government in Florida. That's exactly. We, we get corrupt and incompetent government for way less money. <laughs> That's enticing. Uh, at one point, you write about Florida's roadside attractions. 
which Florida just seems to have the most and the weirdest of these things. Uh, for instance, there is a place apparently that promises a glimpse of, quote, mermaids eating apples <laughs> underwater. Yeah, that's Wiki Wachi. Um, and it was started in 1947 by a guy named Newt Perry, who could hold his breath for eight minutes underwater, ladies and gentlemen. What? And you get, a guy gets hungry and thirsty doing that, right? So (laughs) he started this attraction, which still exists, and these mermaids, and I just should stress, are not real mermaids, they're women wearing tails. Okay, Um, thanks. Swim around, and they breathe from hoses, and they drink from uh, some kind of bottled beverage, and eat apples underwater, and then they do a great patriotic finale. (laughs) Yeah, to Lee Greenwood's Proud to be an American. Forget about Disney, man. How did these attractions become a thing? Basically just to entice tourists, I guess, from the north? Yeah, yeah. Back then, there was no interstate in 95, so people were kind of driving on roads where there were sides to the roads. We call them roadsides. (laughs) I hope I'm not going too fast. Hmm. People would put up attractions. 90% of these attractions involved alligators, which we have in abundance down here. And Mm. the truth is, alligators are the world's most boring creatures because they basically what? just lie there in the muck for days on end. If you like throw fish at them, they'll you know they'll stack the fish up on their not on their noses, be like nine fish deep on. And then they, every now and then, to try to make it more exciting, they would have alligator wrestling, which is the, yeah. the most overrated activity in history. Yeah. This is people wrestling the alligators. Of course, it's not two alligators <laughs> wrestling each other. No, that would be pretty exciting. Yeah. Or two guys wrestling over an alligator, something like that. But no, mm. a man goes out in the alligator, and the alligator doesn't want to be part of this. You can like. Sometimes they have the audience decide which alligator, and all the alligators are like, please don't pick me, please. Don't pick me. <laughs> they drag the alligator out there, and it's like, oh God, not again. And the, the guy gets on its back and does all these daring things. But you know, you can just tell the alligator just wants to go back into the muck with the <laughs> yeah. other alligators. Yeah. He's like, yep, yep, lo- you got me, you got me again. <laughs> you win. <laughs> There's the chokehold. Yeah. yeah, they're like, it's kind of like the Harlem Globetrotters against the Washington Generals. <laughs> the alligator is the Washington General, and it never wins. I, you know, I need to ask you. My Facebook feed is filled pretty much every day with news stories about various ill-advised activities that Florida men and women engage in, often nude. <laughs> and you and you have a theory about why Florida attracts weird and occasionally stupid people. Yeah, right? Florida has only 6% of the, uh, the U.S. population, but accounts for 73%, uh, this is a statistic, of the mm. nation's weirdness. Yeah, and, um, it's in the census. And my theory is, like, if you were to imagine a crate with high sides but no top, and in the corner of that right hand lower right hand corner there's a little corridor and you put rats in there yeah all the rats would eventually go down that corridor but like the smart ones w- yeah. w- would turn around and, and come figure out how to come back out the dumb ones would be unable to do that <laughs> they'd be stuck down there and the crazy ones would be maybe attracted to that and that's that's florida that's us what does that say about you Dave? Our, what i my point is we have a lot of weird people but they come from your state probably <laughs> I mean, when you're laughing at florida you're mm. laughing at your own state. Yeah, mm-hmm. I think you say at one point you're the Ellis Island of stupidity. <laughs> we are. Give us your weird and your stupid yearning to just urinate naked in, in Walmart. Don't put it all on Florida. That's all I'm saying. Well, as, as though to prove your point, uh, we've had listeners write in from all over the country with problems for you to solve. Are you ready for these etiquette questions? I, I'm ready, yeah. Let's get to the etiquette portion of our... All right. Here's something from Christopher via Twitter. Christopher writes, what is the best way to approach a friend or relative who engages in vague booking for attention? And for those who don't what? know, vague booking is the act of posting an update on social media that is intentionally vague or passive-aggressive. Uh, an example would be like, some people don't know how to listen. End message. <laughs> wow. I, I had not heard of, of vague booking, but what I would do is, if this is Facebook, you can comment, you can react. Yeah, of course. Every time I saw that, I would post something like, 
you don't know the half of it. <laughs> You'd vague book back. Yeah. Just vague book right. Or the other way to go would be to say, I know exactly what you mean. Vague yeah. them right back. Get vague with Clear, them. This is clearly a man who's been successfully married, right? No, this my. Because it seems like this is, this is yeah. the secret to relationships, is I being able to so. vague back and forth. Years and years of that. All right. This next question comes from JR in LA. JR writes, I love to set out fun, kitschy things on my front doorstep. How many gnomes is too many? My neighbors seem to dig it. I realize they might just be being polite. <laughs> Probably. I'm a little surprised. I mean, and I, I don't want to be too critical. Uh, some of us feel that one gnome is too many gnomes. Yeah. But <laughs> Crazy. If, if your yeah. neighbors are liking it, I would say you're okay up to a, a nuclear family of uh, four gnomes. That's top. Should they actually be different sizes so that they represent a family? Well, now it's L.A., and I think it's 2016, and they can be however way they want to identify. They could uh-huh. be gnomes who yeah. identify as lawn flamingos, and, and, that's and I'm tr- fine with it. That is so. a good question, actually. Is there a preponderance? I mean, that's the, the stereotype is that the lawn flamingos, the ground is thick with them there in Florida. True? Uh, no, I've never seen one except to be used in magazine photo shoots representing Florida. All right. <laughs> there you go. Punctured that balloon. Here's something from Christine via Instagram. Christine writes, if you have coworkers who constantly repeat the same lame jokes on a daily basis, is it possible to let them know the joke wasn't funny the first time and therefore is definitely not funny enough to repeat? If so, how? For the love of God, how? Capital letters. <laughs> she could go, you know, go all academic and bring in a professional stand-up comic uh, to listen to oh. the joke. And issue a ruling, yeah. uh, and everybody would agree to abide by this ruling. <laughs> I like this. Whether it was like funny this. the first time, and if so, yeah. how many times it could be repeated before it's not funny. Okay, so so you think bring in a joke judge, and the joke judge might be like, Christine, that's actually pretty funny. Yeah, and as far <laughs> as I know, <laughs> Let it so she's, she is in L.A. Is she in L.A.? We don't know. She just We got this via Instagram, so we don't oh, know. Because in L.A., I think roughly every third human is a stand-up comic. Um, that's right. So. Or someone who feels qualified to judge the arts. Oh, <laughs> yeah, sometimes in both. Uh, yeah. that, that's a good All idea. Right. Should this person maybe sit on a, a little lifeguard stand? No, because it would be more like a court situation. Oh. Yeah, maybe robes and a gavel. Let's adjourn to the court of jokes. So is there a jury, or is this just with the judge? Like, should there be? No, like... no, the judge rules. <laughs> the judge is a professional stand-up comedian. He's judge, okay. jury, and executioner of jokes. I hear that, yeah, yeah, stand-up comedians are really normal and easy to hang out they, with. They're fun people. <laughs> they're yeah. always in a good mood. If I'm not working it in and out that day, they can come to your office. <laughs> All right, this next question comes from Beth, who is in California. We know that for a fact because she told us. And Beth writes, I have a coworker who sings along with cell phone ringtones. No matter what the ringtone is, a generic ringtone or a song, he sings along with it. <laughs> People around me get phone calls all day. How can I nicely ask him to stop chiming in every time? My God. Well, my first thought is to use mace, but that's probably against no. the law. Don't do that. Maybe another way to go, more creative way to go, would cost a little money. Hire a, a barbershop quartet to come in and mm-hmm. sing, stand next to this person and sing along with everything he does. And again, barbershop quartets are available because mm-hmm. there's, there's not a high demand. If Beth and Christine yeah. work in the same Wait. office, you're going to just have a very fun I know, office. Dave, you're really doing a lot for the uh, creative community, <laughs> encouraging Thank you. their employment. By the way, I think the first mace thing, that is probably legal in Florida, right? Oh, here it's legal. That's not a problem. Everything is legal here. The answers to all these questions are mace if you're in Florida. They use mace as banaca in Florida. <laughs> <laughs> That's how we say hello. All right. All right, Dave Barry, <laughs> thanks for telling our audience how to behave. It's why I'm here. Dave Barry, his new book is called Best State Ever, A Florida Man Defends His Homeland. That's right. And we spoke to him from WLRN in Miami, Florida, by the way, where our show airs on Saturdays. You see, it's clearly a very smart state. 
And folks, if you want your etiquette questions answered, send them to us via our website. It's dinnerpartydownload.org. Author, educator, and cultural critic Mark Grief is co-founder of the journal N Plus One, which is known for making intellectual literature, commentary, and think pieces actually accessible. His new book is a collection of essays, many of which first appeared in that journal. In it, he critiques foodies, talks about the death of the hipster, and has no less than three pieces on the meaning of life. Wow. The book is called Against Everything. And when I spoke to Mark, I asked if he was really against everything. I was a bit worried uh, when I chose the title because I was afraid people would stop me and say, are you against everything? My little niece uh, learned the title and she was thinking it through. She said, your daughter, Simone, your three-year-old, are you against Simone? You know, and I had to say, I'm not against Simone. I'm, I'm for Simone. But I, you know, I think of this idea against everything as a, maybe a method rather than something that you would start making you know, lists of for all the things you're against. That is, um, I do think uh, we live in a, a world of a lot of shouted orders and advertising demands and lies and proposals that just can't be true, um, but in which you're, you're supposed to do a lot of things, or we suppose uh, we ought to do. We ought to be exercising. We ought to be eating right. We ought to be thinking the right thoughts. And so against everything to me is just a kind of principle of saying, um, what if I did press my nose up to it or, or put my weight against it? Would this idea actually stand up? Are the things I'm supposed to like the things I like? And mm. are the things I'm supposed to vilify really things I dislike and try to start from zero? Often with contrarianism, I find it's it's kind of idealistic, right? To mm. take on these things is to believe that there is a better way or there could be a better way. Yeah, I do think there's a principle of um, kind of joy and hope and comedy in it all, right? Searching for some kind of happy ending rather mm. than just uh, seeing tragedy everywhere you look. Yeah. yeah. Well, well, I'd like to talk about the first essay in this book because this you tackle the tyranny of exercise where you kind of critique the, the modern uh, gym-goer you know, a lot of listeners might think, how can anyone take on someone's in instinct to take care of their body? It seems unassailable. You know, I had a vision, uh, not a positive vision, but, you know, like the kind of vision that, that knocked William Blake down in his garden or something, and he saw heaven and hell. I was, um, I was in a gym. I was on a Stairmaster. Uh, I was, you know, there for all the right reasons, and I looked around, and... Um, I began to see my fellows torturing themselves, hanging themselves upside down, sweating, straining, but not looking at one another, not even laughing, not acknowledging uh, the other people around them. And I thought, oh, my God, we are the damned. Uh, and, I, you know, I looked around at each person, like on the lat pull down, and I thought, you are damned. And, and you know, a person crucified on a pull-up bar, you are damned. And, and I thought, well, me too, clearly. Uh, what am I doing here? Yeah. And um, so the essay, uh, it stemmed from that, you know, an effort to, like, think, what do these things look like? You know, when did people last uh, pull hard on iron bars to lift something? Well, you know, they used to do it to raise a house or something or raise a barn. What is the connection between the kind of labor that we used to do and which, uh, in many ways, thank God, we've been relieved of when we're no longer hard at work in an industrial factory all day. But it suddenly seems we're reproducing for leisure, for health, to take care of our bodies in our off time. seems like one of the takeaways that you want people to have is, quote, the distraction from living 
that comes with endless life maintenance. You know, it seems like one of the themes is that if we go to these places and spend all this time thinking about our bodies and perfecting them, that we are going to be avoiding the actual gifts we have as being citizens of the 21st century and, and live a full, complete life because we're so distracted by our, our bodily limitations. And it, I, it's exactly what you say. There is a kind of peculiar sense in which once you start asking yourself, are there other ways to do things like move? Mm. Um, or what are the real necessities of life? You do start to think we spend a huge amount of time storing away and preserving life for the future rather than living it. Mm. Or maybe that in a way we don't recognize our own freedoms, partly because it's hard to know what else you would do with them. Yeah. I, well, that your kind of critique of, um, for lack of a better word, health extends into your essay on food, where you kind of talk about and critique foodism and that sort of thing. And, and it ends, you end your chapter with a question that speaks to what you were just saying, which is, um, health is our model of all things invisible and unfelt. If in this day and age we rejected the need to live longer, what would rich Westerners live for instead? Do you have any ideas or suggestions for the rich Westerner? What What would you rather them have? <laughs> be doing? Well, I I hope that was my most satanic <laughs> laugh because um, you know there is a great temptation, and in a way, it becomes its own business of prophecy and and advice. You say, ah, oh, you miss out that the the one true goal of life is. And um, I I actually think, you know, I look at myself and I look at how I spend my day and I I think about the ways that I do think about my food and my political allegiances and my exercise and, you know, and um, in the midst of all of it, it always comes back to me. I can't even remember who it was, but there's some character in a, a novel, an old novel, who says suddenly, I did not know what to do with my moral freedom. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that, you know, as things go, um, I actually think that's a pretty good state of mind to dwell in uh, rather than instantly glomming on to some other ultimate goal or some proper ideology. We would all do. uh, Well, now I'm become here it comes the guru moment. (laughs) We would all we would all do well, I think, to spend a little more time kind of realizing that we don't know what to do with our freedom. Yeah, um, you have degrees from Harvard, Oxford. Yale. Any other degrees I'm forgetting there on that list? <laughs> <laughs> you, you were at some center no, in Princeton. I'm talking to you at Stanford. Oh, yeah. You, you, are, no. you are of the academy. Um, and yet you write about food, exercise. You also write about Radiohead and hip-hop and punk. Tell me about that impulse to, to take on these things when you, you may actually be judged from the academic world yeah. for taking these on. Yeah. You know, I, t- I take the lesson of scholarship I mean, you know, the full-on, hardcore, my entire life is in the library kind of university scholarship as being um, a lesson of, uh, you know, follow the things that you are passionate about, no matter how obscure, but also, um, if possible, well, as Henry James said, you know, be the kind of person on which nothing is lost. Um, Mm. Pay attention. And if uh, the university is known at its best as a place where, like, people with Albert Einstein hair uh, wander around with their heads in the clouds, um, I think that same kind of intensity of focus at this moment, and this is more the cultural argument of the book, um, at this moment needs to be applied to the details of the things you do every day Mm. Um, and the things that actually you spend all your time doing and really care about, um, but when push comes to shove, you don't think of as worthy of 
not worthy of Einstein's attention. You yeah. Know? I would need Einstein to help me figure out this new Stairmaster at the local Y. Kind of thing. <laughs> <laughs> and so there's this computer screen. Yes. Mark Grief, his new book is called Against Everything. And I have to admit, he stole the name I was going to use for my autobiography. <laughs> Maybe you could just call yours uh, Against Brunch Ellipsis. You know? I like ellipsis, so that wouldn't make any sense. That's not what it... Anyway, folks, that concludes the Dinner Party download for this week. <laughs> and if that makes you sad, there's a bunch of stuff you can do, like follow us on Twitter or Instagram, where our handle is Dinner Party DNLD. Or even better yet, subscribe to our podcast, where we often post special podcast-only bonus episodes. Sign up via iTunes or wherever podcasts are podcasted. This show would not exist without our producer, Jackson Musker, associate producer, Nina Patak, and associate digital producer, Christina Lopez. Our interns are Danny Carmichael and Kathleen McGovern. Engineering this week came from Daniel Ramirez. And now before we leave you, it's time for One for the Road, a song to spin on your way to or returning from this week's dinner parties. Joan Shelley is a Kentucky-based singer-songwriter who releases new music every September. Her latest is a single called Cost of the Cold. Bon Appetit. Found your way, broke the fence Fallow field rest in Clear your mind till there's nothing left But two arms to lay in the morning sun may leave us All our wounding See the dogs upon the path How they pull to lead us To the streams they seem to laugh At how we think they need us between these leaves and stones Here I know I'll go Thanks for attending the Dinner Party Download. I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. Thanks for listening. All right, nice show. You want to hit the gym or something? No, sorry, man. I've reassessed how I use my free time. You're sipping liquid cheese through a straw mm-hmm. and smoking a cigarette right now. <laughs> so...